All right, good morning. Good morning. Um, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're on our last lesson. I know some of you are probably very excited to be done with me. Um, so I will finish up We the way we're going to do it here, because I only have like two or so verses left. I'll finish up these last two verses, and then Drew's going to come up and start teaching chapter 3. Um, so I will start, but I'll read starting in verse 14 just to get more of the context there. The rest of chapter 2, and then we'll begin. So, verse 14 Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So let's uh, review again. Can anybody who was here last week remind me of what, we've what we talked about last week? I think we kind of picked up in verse 19 and got to about 24 there. So anybody remember anything we talked about? We wrestled with what the house meant mm -hmm. the world of the church. Yeah. yeah, we did talk about that where it talks in verse 20 there. It says, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver. Um, there were some commentaries, most commentaries I think, said that it was the church, and that's kind of how I uh, believe, and I believe what it's talking about there. Um, I believe it's talking about the true church as well, and so everybody there is is true believers, um, these vessels, and so I think what the message was was that believers can be used to different degrees in the kingdom of God depending on um, the level to which they uh, cleanse themselves from dishonorable things. So in level which they flee from sin and flee from immorality and pursue righteousness uh, is going to affect the way that they're used in the kingdom of God. And some are used are used in the kingdom of God, but some are used in a far greater way because of that. And that's what I believe that that was teaching there. And so, yeah, we did talk a good deal about that. Anybody else remember anything? Go ahead. For some reason, I've thought a lot about this chapter in the last couple of weeks. And I think the whole unifying theme of like chapter two is to like avoid that like obscure, pugnacious Bible teaching where you like you know spend nine hours debating how many angels can dance in the mm -hmm. um, You know that's that that was a you know it's a temptation today, but I think it was also a temptation Bible times. And I think that's you know when you read the chapter with that idea in mind that this is what Paul's warning against, um, it, it kind of like brings the whole thing together and it makes sense. And you know, all these verses about you know babbling and worthless controversies and mm -hmm. you know, instead of being this like 
uh, bulldog, debater, you know, you correct of gentleness. And the more I think about it, the more I think that really is kind of a unifying theme here. Um, and if that's true, then it is interesting that you can have kind of like a worthless Bible teaching ministry if you spend all your time just like debating obscure, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's super abstract stuff. Now, of course, a lot of the theological stuff is kind of hard to understand. We should start off with it. But certain people, I don't know if it's their personality types or what, kind of way overboard mm-hmm. and just, you know, that their kids can't stand them, their wife can't stand them, but they can, like, you know, chop you all up when it comes to, like, intralapsarianism. <laughs> now, people like that. There's something, like, wrong with them, and the Bible teaching ministry is not really mm-hmm. very fruitful. So I think, you know, again, the more I thought about it, I really think that is sort of like what locks this chapter together. It was a temptation Bible times, and I'm still a temptation today. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to regularly examine ourselves. Are we properly engaging with Bible? Are we proper, or are we getting off on these, you know, irrelevant mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is one of the primary themes of this chapter, and he says it over and over again in a number of verses, and really a number of verses in First um, Timothy as well as in Titus about avoiding these irreverent, this irreverent babble and these uh, uh, all these I don't know different different th- objections that would be brought up by false teachers and stuff to try to ensnare you to try to just start an argument with you. And there are preachers, there are people. You know, I mentioned some people like on YouTube, if you go on online ministries, really all they'll do is just um, constantly engage in this kind of thing. And to some degree, I think that is helpful to hear answers against such some of these things. Um, but when you begin to just become entangled with these things, and that's all your ministry is, I think, um, as Paul says, it only hurts the hearers and it does no good. So I think that is part of um, or a large part of, of chapter two here. Any other comments before we keep going? Go ahead. Verse 21, it just really makes me realize how important repentance is. And it's so important because until we repent, God won't transform our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to repent and actually truly be broken mm-hmm. where we're not fighting against it anymore. Mm-hmm. And then we can begin to renew our minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. We are called to repent, and that's a turning away from, you know, um, the evil, the sin in our in our life, and then you know, a pursuing of righteous things, and and an actually actually being uh, remorseful over what you've done, and not just trying to cleanse your conscience or something like that. So, yeah, that's true as well. Um, we got in then to verse twenty four here, which uh, talks really about characteristics that are to be. Um, evident in a pastor's life. It talks about the Lord's servant, and we, we talked that Lord's servant there is primarily, the focus there is of the pastor and the preacher, as this is addressed from Paul to Timothy, Timothy being a preacher. Um, of course, it's applicable to, to everyone, to a regular Christian as well, um, but these are to be characteristic of uh, a pastor or a minister of the Word of God. <clears throat> and the first thing that we, we talked about is that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, that they are not to have a contentious personality, um, be argumentative. It kind of goes along with what we've been talking about again, um, but they are to be respectful, kind to those they come in contact with. They are to be engaging, um, approachable to their congregation, not distant from their congregation, um, but to have that kind of a relationship with them. And I think that's what's uh, uh, in mind there. And it says that they are to be able to teach. Um, we talked about kind of the important role that teaching has in the life of the church, the important role that it has for a pastor. It's the primary role uh, of them. And so that they are supposed to be able to teach. They need to be gifted in that way. Uh, then it goes on to say that they are to patiently endure evil. This would be the evil that would uh, uh, arise um, because of their ministry and uh, them teaching the truth that 
inevitably you're going to uh, be met with resistance and uh, objection as people are offended by the truth of God's word when you're, when you're preaching and teaching it. And so Paul's telling Timothy to prepare himself for that. And then he needs to patiently endure this kind of evil. People will falsely accuse you of things. They will slander you um, and do all sorts of things uh, to try to tear you down as the pastor or a preacher of the truth as they're offended by the truth. I think another version says, uh, be patient when wronged. And so when, when somebody is wrongfully treating you as a preacher, uh, you need to be patient anyway. You know, it's not always easy to do, but that's what Timothy or Paul's calling Timothy to do here. So then we'll pick up at verse 25 is where we left off. And it says that he is, another uh, characteristic is that he is to correct his opponents with gentleness so that when they're met with contention and with opposition, they are not to fire back with a similar level of uh, contention themselves, but instead are to correct their opponents with gentleness, which again isn't always an easy thing to do. There's a kind of a line there um, that you have to, you have to make sure you're not crossing when you're when you're talking to the, these kinds of people. But I don't think there's any greater example of this than the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who was continually met with opposition and backlash. And though he was without sin, uh, and yet he always responded with gentleness and meekness. Now, of course, he was firm in some areas and strict, and, and that's, that doesn't mean that you're not being gentle if you are you know, firm on the truth. And so you kind of do have to toe that line that you're not being so firm that you lose the gentleness and meekness that you're called to, but you're not being so gentle and meek that you kind of lose the uh, reality of the truth, I guess, if you will. So if that makes sense. And uh, so a couple of verses, uh, Isaiah 53, 7, which is a prophecy about Jesus, says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. First Peter 2, 3, and 4, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so that is what the pastor is called to do. That's what we're called to do as well, is to entrust um, that God is going to take care of this thing. Uh, but we are not to revile back. We are not to try to, you know, and in the context here, correcting their opponents with gentleness is when, you know, unbelievers... Ultimately, false teachers would come and object to things uh, over and over again and not to try to win the argument with them, um, but to try to correct them by you know, showing them what's in the Word of God and to do so gently. So any comments or questions on that before we move on? Go ahead. I'm thankful that God has given us the Holy Spirit and that we talk about the Holy Spirit. The attempt is watching the flesh, but we should be this is all only possible to be done by the help of the Holy Spirit, so we do need to pray for that help um, and trust that that help will come from the Spirit and not in our own abilities to, to carry these kinds of things out because it is hard to, to do all these things perfectly. It's impossible to do them perfectly, but it's hard to even just uh, listen to all these commands and, and live them out on a day-to-day -day basis. So we do need the help of the Holy Spirit. Any other comments? I just see all of these, you know, you, you start there at the beginning that... Um, 
not be quarrelsome, be kind, and patiently endure, well, not even patiently, just endure evil, correcting opponents with Jonah, but it all leads up to what you're getting ready to touch on. Mm-hmm. The point of, of all that is for them to repent, and, mm-hmm. and it should all lead to the glory of God mm-hmm. and their repentance mm-hmm. and submission to Him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is the that is the reason for all of this, and why the pastor is called to do things in this way, um, so that hopefully uh, one day they will repent. So, anything else before we yeah, go ahead? Yeah, those verses make me think of when um, so, uh, Paul had a disagreement with John Mark. Remember this? Um, we mm-hmm. talked about it in our women's uh, not expectation, right? And not 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 the verses particularly from verses of spoken, but. Then I know that, like, they reconciled. So maybe, I don't know, maybe John Mark did do something that he needs to repent from, or I don't know, that's speculative. But then they did get back together. Mm-hmm. So perhaps Paul did kind of talk to him. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully he, he might have uh, done what he's talking about here, and um, and that was a way in which helped them to reconcile together and not grow apart and um, resistant to one another. Yeah. Anything else before we move on? Go ahead, Ben. I think uh, one area is that uh, when we talk about this thing, is that, you know, for all church leaders, you know, we bring the gospel to teach people in things like this, but we hold ourselves more accountable than the ordinary church member. And a lot of times, some leaders have that problem with that. You know, they can teach perfectly, preach perfectly, and they don't want the scrutiny to be upon them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's where the problem is because you can have a pastor who is very petty, takes, we talk about contentions, mm-hmm. very mundane things. And when he preaches, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, so you look at the person's preaching or you are looking at his. You know, and some people have a problem <clears> with that. And people leave the church, even though there's sound doctrine. But for the leader's attitude, it's not just the pastor, but even the elders and mm-hmm. leaders of the church. And people leave. So what I'm saying is that sometimes we need to really look at ourselves. In what way are we driving people away? Are we encouraging people to join our church by just a flippant thing that we say, you know, some a joke somewhere mm-hmm. and things like that? Sometimes we don't do that. So I think this goes for everyone of us. Mm-hmm. Have we in the past done things that are just and people away from the church because of this. Mm-hmm. And then people come in just to observe things. Mm-hmm. You know, and so even though there may be sound doctrine, but just a little something we said just puts and if we care, then we'll do well to do that introspection. Mm-hmm. You know? I am saying this because my local church in Ghana, I mean they don't have a pastor today. I, I made inquiries and it's all this because the pastor honestly has done something that's not been helpful. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine the pastor's wife, they keep slugging it out with elders, you know, over very mundane things. Mm-hmm. And very soon people have allegiance to the pastor and let's hold allegiance to the church. Mm-hmm. And so the pastor leaves, he takes some people away, and those who are at the call stay. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing. And we go deep down. It's all because we've not, it's not about the Holy Spirit. We've not allowed the word to speak to us. I mean, we are all not perfect. And if we look at the larger good of the church, and you have, don't have to mistake it. You know, whatever we do, it affects our family, it affects our church family, 
wherever we go, it affects that. And so we need to be really praying that God will bless our words, you know, make sure that we are responding to the gospel as we should be going to learning people. Yeah, it's a good example of kind of how this might play out in the life of a church. You know, again, like you said, there might be sound doctrine, and the pastor might be preaching great sermons, um, you know, but if he's not, doesn't have these characteristics that we just talked about that are evident in his life, then that's going to affect his ministry, um, and it will not be useful, will not be helpful. Um, and then to examine your own self, and, and you know, are we one of these people that are bringing these controversies up and... Um, quarreling about words and stuff like that and so we need to be sure that we're not doing that as well so it's a good point um so we'll continue on here uh in the second half of chapter five or 20 verse 25 it says that god may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will so i think the message here to timothy is that timothy is to do all that I have just told you to do. Uh, that is to not be quarrelsome and to teach others and to patiently endure and to correct others gently. And then ultimately, Timothy, you are to leave the results up to God and trust in God uh, that he will work in their lives. And I think this is an important reminder for each and every one of us that you know all we can do is, is do the work, do what we've been called to do, pray to the Lord that he would uh, open their eyes uh, and ultimately just leave the results up to God because we cannot change the heart of an individual. Um, and so that is what we need to be reminded of. I mean, I think so often we try to we try to do that ourselves. We're trying to, with the way we present something. And of course, you should be mindful of how you're presenting the gospel and the most effective way to get that across to somebody. But ultimately not to, you know, constantly beat yourself up on, on something because you're not seeing the results that you want to see um, because ultimately that's up to God. And I think that's kind of what Paul is reminding Timothy here. Of and he's he's telling them here's what you are to do you're to you're to be able to teach but endure evil uh, patiently or to correct with gentleness um, and then keep in mind that God is the one who grants them this repentance and leads them to a knowledge of the truth. Any comments? Go ahead. Yeah, I actually memorized these verses many years ago, or something like that. And I remember realizing like how counterintuitive this kind of thinking is. You know, you know flesh. I think we think the best way to get somebody to repent is to like psychologically arm twist them until they like give in. Um, you know, just keep pressuring them, keep nagging them, keep, you know. But that's not, that's like the opposite of what this passage is saying. I mean, you gently lay out the truth. Now, obviously, you do as lovingly as clearly as you can. Um, but you, you do, like you say, you leave the results up to God. And there does come a point where if I continue to just like psychologically arm twist, I'm probably just going to get angry. And I just go like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll give you, you know, some time to think about this and, you know, move on. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's kind of counterintuitive. I think in the, and, and this has implications for like ministry philosophy. You know, there are things that like seem good to us in the flesh, but are contrary to God's ways. And I think this is one of them. Instead of like trying to, you know, just like pressure and nag and criticize somebody to get, you know, to get them to do what we want. You know, we lay out God's truth as clearly and bluntly as we can. But then we pray that God works repentance in their hearts, mm-hmm. leaving the results up to Him. Mm-hmm. It, it's spoken a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's the message here. It's something that again we need to be reminded of as we're sharing with people. Any other comments on that? And so then it says that God may grant them repentance. And, uh, well, this would mean that repentance is a gift from God. And uh, this is something that a fallen sinner will never seek on their own. Uh, If anyone ever comes to repentance, they have done so by the grace of God. Uh, So we ought to praise God that he has given us the gift of repentance, um, if he has. 
And then in verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. And Paul's kind of likening this to somebody who might be drunk or something and in that drunken stupor, and they're not, they're not in their right frame of mind. Um, and comparing that to a false teacher or an unbeliever who has been just ensnared with this false teaching, um, and they're almost drunk on this teaching and they need to come to their senses. And so as an unbeliever, you are blind to the truth. No matter how many times you hear the truth, uh, it, it will never make sense to you unless the Spirit of God works in your life and reveals that truth to you. And the truth, of course, meaning the gospel and sound doctrine. Um, and again, as an unbeliever, you, you can hear that as many times as you want. You can hear it presented in as well of a way as you want. But if the Spirit of God has not worked in your life, then it's going to sound like foolishness, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then he says of the unbeliever that they have been ensnared by the devil and have been captured by him to do uh, his will. That is, the unbeliever has been trapped by the devil and enslaved by sin. Again, the Bible mentions this, this type of language all the time, and that they are unable to free themselves from this captivity. And again, as we as believers are unable to free them from that captivity. And so I think what this section makes clear is that it is God and God alone uh, who has the power to grant repentance, to lead you to a knowledge of the truth, uh, and to free you from the snare of the devil. So um, I'll finish up with that, but are there any other comments on that um, particular section there? Go ahead. Yeah, on that point about how people are ensnared by the devil and you know captured by him to do as well, the scary thing about it is that unbelievers don't realize they're in that state. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they think they're fine, they think they're you know happy and enjoying the American dream or whatever, uh, but objectively they are nonetheless blinded by the devil, enslaved to it, and mm -hmm. doing as well. And you know, maybe remind yourself that there are going to be people in the auditorium, and maybe you know, perhaps people in this room right now that are in that state, but they have no idea that they're in that state. So mm -hmm. let's pray together that God opens eye, you know, perhaps the phraseology, you know, God may grant them repentance, and they might come to their senses. And let's pray for that, because again, people don't realize, it's not like they're crying out, Lord, save me from this, you know, demonic enslavement. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for that to happen, God's got to open their eyes, so let's pray for that. But even the people that are connected to this congregation today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, it is kind of an alarming thing to know that you that could be true of your life, and you don't even realize it. I mean, it's not like you're meeting with the devil and him telling you, you know, you need to do these things and do these things. They think they're probably on God's side, and yet they're ensnared by the devil. And so it is, it is something to pray for. Go ahead. So you think, I mean, obviously, unbelievers can be uh, trapped by the devil. Do you think that's something that can be resolved by the devil? Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit is inside of us stronger than the devil. But we can perhaps be yeah, I mean, like, still tempted by the devil to do certain things, you know, in a certain sin that may be a besetting sin in your life um, that you're struggling with. I think, I don't know, I guess what the proper theological term would be for it, but I think you could call that being ensnared by the devil. I don't know. I mean, if somebody else has any other thoughts on that, feel free to jump in. But, um, I mean, you're still probably, I'm not ensnared by the devil in, in the way it's talking about here. I think that is talking about kind of unbelievers and, and just, being enslaved to sin, like it, like the Bible talks about, uh, but there are ways that, of course, we as believers still battle temptations. We still, you know, fight against uh, the devil. But you know, we have the help of Holy, Holy Spirit to help us through that. So, does anybody else? Oh, go ahead. Not exactly. To that, it's more of a prior comment of coming to the senses, and I appreciate your that parallel of drunkenness and mm -hmm. um, that idea of like being ensnared by the devil. I think has a nice parallel with addiction that like 
not now, plenty of people who are addicted to substances, for example, do eventually realize, like, wow, I really need help, but often initially they don't, right? Mm -hmm. like, I'm fine, this is fine, this is working for me, yeah. leave me alone, this is not a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like, don't, usually there's this, like, resistance to the idea of something wrong, because mm -hmm. it's, like, enjoyable and it's going well for them right. at some point. Right. Um, and so I think that's really a helpful visual in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that's really good point. That's of course true. The unbeliever, like they don't, they don't think there's anything wrong with them. Yeah. Well, my my life's going great, my right? Life. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is great for me. I get pleasure from this. So why why would I need to change that? Um, so yeah, that is that is certainly kind of the case of what's being laid out here. Of course, we know that there's the reason why they need to change because they're dead in their sins and they'll um, suffer for that. So go ahead, Bennett. I think uh, one example is um, yes, I bring that Christmas. And the example of the, the Jewish leaders who could point out where the Savior will be born and all of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, the Magi, all the, going all the way to Bethlehem to look check things out for themselves. Mm -hmm. And these people read the thing, and you know the scripture, and you could explain and all of that. They were not moved, indifferent. Mm -hmm. They knew the truth. If you talk to them, you'll say, oh, we are all Jehovah's people. Mm -hmm. Any other comments? Um, okay, well, I was going to do a little bit of review, but now I've left Drew with very little time. So um, I'll just, we'll close and uh, ask, is there anything uh, to the first two chapters here that we discussed, anything that stuck out to you uh, that you're taking with you, or maybe just tell me what you think these first two chapters were about? Anybody have anything like that? Before and in depth. Study of this. <clears throat> if if I'd been asked about first and second Timothy, I would say, "Oh, the pastoral epistle is written to pastors, mm -hmm. but it's written to the church too." Yeah, and I didn't realize how much of it applies to the church yeah. as much as it does. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of in the same boat as you as I was going to teach this. I was like, well, I don't really know what I'm going to say. I'm not a pastor, so how am I going to be helpful in this mind? Uh, it is directed to pastors, and there's a lot to say on the life of you know, how a pastor is to live. Uh, but yeah, so much of it is still applicable to the regular believer, the common believer. Um, and so that, that did stick out to me as well. Go ahead, Bert. I think uh, when we studied one, second Timothy, the that Timothy knew the scriptures as a child. By chapter 2, Peter, I mean, Paul is still telling him, study to show yourself mm -hmm. approved unto God. Mm -hmm. So you can't say, oh, I've been in church all this while. I've been in Sunday school since I was a child. Mm -hmm. You still need to study to show yourself approved mm -hmm. unto God. And I think looking at the times that we live in, it becomes very relevant mm -hmm. because like you're saying, all kinds of teachings are going on. And for me, I think coming from Ghana, it's amazing how people can switch to charismatism 
we didn't just, you know, when I was in high school, we went to school, I mean, we, we had a boarding school system, so people came from very sound churches, and guess what, in the, in the, the high school, you have all these charismatic churches just swooping on the schools, and they were very sound people, I mean, in their churches, but they just joined, by the time they were 15, they joined these huge charismatic movements, and over there is money and prosperity, and for young people, it's so enticing, and some of them just go for these things. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, uh, I remember back then, my church, my pastor called and said, hey, when you go to campus, make sure you don't, don't join those groups. And that's what saved some of us, because our pastors warned us ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And there were these other colleagues who were just open and saw this tongue speaking and wild things happening on the campus, and they just fell for this thing. And as I speak, some of them have been in there for 20 years, 30 years almost, and they've even become leaders. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Now, they are just off the tangents compared to when we were in high school and things like that. So, <laughs> I think the battle for truth is that studying to show yourself and prove what you call it. It's always a call that you can't. Yeah, yeah, the studying of, and that sound doctrine that we're called to, I think. Um, and yeah, for the life of the pastor, again, the studying to share, doing the work of, of putting the work of studying the scriptures to understand the, the meaning of it and, and, you know, not just getting by with the minimal amount of effort possible, but, but really to put in the work that you're called to do. So. Anything else? This is just an interesting fact, but the Timothy helps Paul write Timothy. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay, very interesting. Anything else? Any other interesting facts for me? That was yeah. a fun fact. It was fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. All right, well, I'll close this in prayer. I'll give Drew 10 minutes to start a lesson here, but. Dearly Father, thank you uh, so much for uh, this opportunity to teach your word. Thank you for the help that you have given me, Lord, that I so desperately needed. Um, thank you so much for those who have come out to, to listen and to provide helpful comments and help understand your word, Lord. Just pray that you give us wisdom as we read um, and study this book of Second Timothy, uh, that we would understand what you are trying to communicate to us and uh, that we would apply what we're learning to our lives, Lord. And uh, just pray for the, the pastors and preachers that are called to this high calling and this holy calling. Pray that you'd have mercy on them, Lord, and give them grace to be able to carry out their duty uh, before you, Lord. Give them wisdom and strength, <clears throat> Lord, to, to shepherd the flock and to, to live to this high standard that they're called to, Lord. And help them understand that there is mercy and there is grace for when they fall short, Lord. Um, I pray now that you'd be with Drew now as he begins to teach uh, this these Second or chapters three and chapters four here of this book, Lord, just give him wisdom and strength. Be able to teach clearly, give him a clear mind, Lord, and uh, that this would be edifying lesson for us, Lord. And I just pray that you bless this time of study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, we'll get a few minutes here, so try to get started. Um, get a double dose of helps today, like maybe like John and Charles Wesley or something like that. Right? <laughs> um, I mean, in all seriousness, this is a praise. I, I don't want to 
sound like I'm bragging about Jay or something, but um, getting to see my wife and my brother here, that, that's the greatest joy of my life, to see that those two people have come to the Lord. And thinking five years ago, I mean, I would never have envisioned that. So I guess as an encouragement to those of you, I know we've been praying for certain people um, to come to the Lord and know them or know him. And you know, it can't happen because I'm not saying Jay was living like the uh, sodomites or anything, but he was, you know, obviously he will tell you, you know, he was not in the right relationship. So it's wonderful to see that. Um, I've got about 10 minutes to discuss the, uh, what I, or I guess summarize what I want to discuss in chapters 3 and 4. And I think it's going to work out well because I just wanted to give you an overview. I, I, when I started planning this a while back, I had an envision coming up here with you know with ten minutes to go, but I wanted to I wanted to just kind of give a, a summary of, of chapters three and four, and really I think the entire book of Second Timothy. Um, and I, I intended to print this out, and of course I forgot to do it, but I'll print it next week, and you guys can can have this in front of you. But um, really, this book of Second Timothy is a book full of imperatives. Um, it's it's a book where Paul emphasizes to Timothy the idea of perseverance. He's continually encouraging Timothy, admonishing Timothy, and warning Timothy of certain things to come and certain things to be aware of. Uh, if you can think back to like, you know, middle school language arts, you remember what an imperative is, right? A command, or we call it in, you know, we would say an understood subject where you don't have to actually put a noun or a subject in the body of the sentence to be grammatically correct because it's understood. And I'm talking to you. If I say sit down or, you know, Go away! Like you, I don't have to put a noun in there to be grammatically correct because you know who I'm talking to. Uh, well, if you look through, and maybe you can do this on your own if if uh, spirit convicts you to do it. Um, this is what I wanted to print for you going into my first lesson, and I'll do that for next week. But there are a ton of imperatives in the book of Second Timothy where Paul is telling Timothy, "Do this." Uh, there's no subject in in English. There's in, in the English language. There's no subject in the body of the sentence because it's understood that he's speaking directly to Timothy. Um, and he's instructing him on how he ought to live um, with respect to the life of a pastor and also with respect to what is potentially going to come his way. Uh, most of what Jay dealt with is kind of this idea of Timothy's conduct. And again, while it's written specifically to Timothy, there's no doubt that it's applicable to us as well. What I will be looking at here, at least in the beginning uh, of the, fir or the first couple of lessons, is, is kind of the warning of what is coming. And so you think about, you know, I can remember back to like my high school basketball days, we would practice, you know, we usually have games on Friday. So your, your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was all talking about how you, this is how we're going to play. You know, this is we're practicing our fundamentals. We're going over our plays. We're discussing, you know, what we're going to do in order to be, to execute properly. And then all of Thursday was always the other team, you know, here's what they're going to look like. And so we got to be prepared for what we're going to see coming. And so we're, we're seeing something similar to that in a biblical fashion where we're being told how we ought to live, but then we're going to be warned about what the enemy looks like. Um, again, when I started preparing this a while back, I anticipated that in our main sermon series that we would be through 1 Thessalonians 5 at this point, but in the providence of God, we're not. Uh, this is going to be exactly where we pick up in the next couple of weeks um, when we start looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians again. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 21, Paul says this, test everything, hold fast that which is good. And the question is, how do we know what it is to which we are to hold fast? How do we know what is good. This command that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians requires us to have some fundamental and moreover objective understanding of, what, of, of that which is good. In other words, you know, Paul is commanding us to hold on to something. What is it that we are to hold on to? 
Uh, is that which is good, like, you know, beauty? Is it in the eye of the beholder? Um, is, if we're not careful, I think it may be that we, when we hear or read this passage, we immediately draw our own conclusions as to what is good and assume that Paul is talking about this. So um, there are certain biblical truths that we hold on to, but think about the world at large or even the church at large where uh, doctrine of inerrancy has kind of come into question and the Bible is not necessarily always true. Uh, they may hear that verse read and, and think, you know, something that's totally unbiblical, maybe even sinful, is, is good, and we should hold on to it. And so there's a command here to hold on to something that is good, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is he talking about? Uh, we'd be better served to ask ourselves this question, what is that which is good? The Bible uh, talks about this, and so it's not silent. In Matthew 19, chapter 7, and this is when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, you know, good teacher. Jesus responds to him and says, you know, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Right? And basically laying out this idea that you either call me God or you know you don't call me good. Well, you can't have it both ways. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, which is quoted from Psalm 14 and Psalm 55 as well, we find that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if only God is good and man is not, how, how is it that we should know what it is that is good to hold on to? Um, I think the obvious answer to this is, well, we got to know God, right? And then you say, well, how do you know God? And I believe the best way to know God is to know him through his revealed, inspired word. And so we have to study the word. Now, if you're thinking, well, I thought you were talking about 2 Timothy, and you spent the last three minutes talking about 1 Thessalonians, it's because I think that Paul is addressing this very issue when he writes his second letter to Timothy. In other words, we can look at the entire book of 2 Timothy, the entire letter, and look at it as instructions as to how to hold fast to that which is good. I mean, really, Paul is trying to set Timothy up in kind of a mentor-mentee relationship, right? We know, and Jay talked about this, that Paul is writing this towards the end of his life, and Paul anticipates that it's close to the end of his life, that this is, uh, he, he's trying to make sure Timothy has all the proper tools to follow in his footsteps. And he wants to make sure that as trials come, as tribulations come, and as pushback and opposition comes his way, that Timothy has everything he needs to hold fast to that which is good. And so as we read this, I know, it, again, the, second, well, the book of Second Timothy is written to Timothy, but it's definitely applicable to us. I think we can draw from it the, the ways in which we are to remain steadfast, persevere, um, to be continued warriors, for lack of a better word, for, for the faith, you know, spiritual defenders of the faith. And so, Lord willing, that's what we'll talk about um, in the weeks to come. We'll be kind of reminded in a nutshell of what it means to hold fast to that which is good. Uh, at this point, I was going to transition into the actual chapter, and it's, it's 1028. So, um, does anybody have anything they want to add to what I've said? Or even maybe if you've read ahead, anything that you've you know, thought about, the Lord's convicted you of in terms of the final two chapters of Timothy? Go ahead, Chris. I do not know, to be totally honest with you. I'm not even going to take a no, guess. Yeah, Second Timothy is like the last book Paul wrote, like maybe yeah. months before his death. Yeah. Um, and Timothy, the first Timothy was only probably you know, a couple years before that. So these are two of the later books. Philippians was rather early. All right, well, I will still go ahead and wrap us up in prayer and pray that the coming weeks are fruitful and uh, we can reconvene then. 
God, thank you for the opportunity to preach. Um, I praise you as it is uh, something that I um, both look forward to and, and want to take seriously at the same time. We, I do pray that uh, as we dive into chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Second Timothy that uh, we consider uh, with reverence the responsibilities that we have and the duties that we have to uh, hold fast to the good news and the truth and then to uh, be a light before others. And I pray that um, as Jay spoke of today that we would be gentle with those around us, we'd be kind, we'd be uh, consider it not domineering or condescending, but um, in our attitudes, others might take note of your uh, goodness, and, and you may even grant them repentance. I pray that as we think about those in the congregation today or those who are just visiting with us, that uh, if their hearts are in a position of, uh, of where they're struggling with their conscience, that you would work by your Spirit to convict them, that they would see uh, their need for salvation and the, and the wonderful blessing it is to trust in you for that. Lord, we pray this all and to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.